Murder and Moonshine, a true crime podcast with a southern twist. Hey guys, welcome back to Murder and Moonshine. This is Christy. And this is Misty. And today we've got part two of the Snowtown Murders. We're going back to the land down under Australia for some serial killers. And I say that plural. Mm. There's so we, we got a lot to a uh, few of them. Mm-hmm. Got a lot to unravel here in part. We two. do. We've got to dive in. There's a lot of shit to wade through here. But so first, we know it's been like a week for you guys, but it's been about ten minutes for us. <laughs> yeah, we're we're taping this back to back. <laughs> so we're knee deep already in our jar of burnt moonshine. moonshine. It's it's actually old smoky charred charred. That's yeah. why I said burnt. I mean. You were in the same vicinity there. <laughs> so, um, it's 105 us. proof, yes. just like it was last week for you guys and 10 minutes ago for, for us. us. So but we're still drinking. So we're going to try to make this part two coherent for everyone involved. Yes. You guys are coming to us all fresh. And we have already been road hard and put up wet, so <laughs> we hope you guys enjoy it. But we got a shout out to give. We do. I got the fucking most amazing email from Audra Fidel. Like Castro, but not. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely not like Castro. We love her. We love her. I love her fucking sense of humor. She's Audra, awesome. we love your suggestion. It's on the murder list. Thank you for emailing us. We appreciate it. Yes. Yes. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for September 20th when part two comes out of the Murdoch murders on Netflix. Oh, Yes, I'm you know I'm gonna be all up in that. Yes, girl. Buster then done his first interview, and he all taken up for his daddy and shit. I personally think that Buster's just like the spoiled kid who his parents <coughs> gave him lots of drugs and alcohol and lots of yeses and never told him no. Yeah, and um, that's just the complex he has. Well, I mean, a lot of people agree with you there. I think Paul was the same way. Absolutely. I think it's a tragedy all around and all the people that were connected that passed away, whether they actually had anything to do with it or not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tragedy it's a all tragic the way around story. Yeah. 100%. So we're going to stay tuned for part two. Of oh that. yeah. I'm definitely going to be all watching right. it. Um, before you give us some trigger warnings, how about you pour me a little bit of that chard? Old smoking. Here we go. Let's get it poured up here. And whatever you guys are drinking on, get yours poured up. Because cheers, bitches. Mm. Mm. Let me take a little. I I mean, we've been drinking for a minute now, so I'd expect it to get easier. No, that doesn't get easier. It is. Mm -mm. It's pretty. It's pretty. um, But we need something rough because this is a rough story. It is a rough story. It is. And the trigger warnings on this one are murder, dismemberment, cannibalism. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's always a tough one for me. This, and when I describe that part, it's just. Horrific. I, her, yeah. Oh, God. It is. Okay. It is. Okay. Oh. Anyway, I can't wait. Tell me. So let's get a little recap from last week. We've got a lot of people involved here, and I know it can get confusing because some people have similar names or same names. So, and they've been through the same thing as well. Yeah, there's so many layers of trauma here. Basically, we have a group of people that have come together with traumas of their own, Mm -hmm. and you've got John Bunting, Mm -hmm. basically creating this little army where they go out and they kill gay people, mm-hmm. disabled people, mm-hmm. and steal their money. And this is how their government their checks. living. Yeah, absolutely. And they feel like they're doing it to save children from pedophiles. Right. Or that's and how they're justifying That is it. how they're justifying it. Absolutely. And now they have found in this tiny little town called Snowtown an abandoned bank that they have decided to rent because John Bunting is really interested in the vaults downstairs. Oh. So, 
think we're ready to dive in. Okay. So he wants the vaults. Why? Because they're soundproof, smellproof, all that. Seaproof. Yes. <laughs> I can only imagine what he has in store. Oh, carnage yes. is what he has in store. So John's thinking he's untouchable as long as the police can't find any bodies. He starts calling and harassing people that he had up on his interrogation wall with all the little papers and the lines going to other little papers of people that he had as targets to or saying that they were pedophiles. Mm -hmm. John, not feeling like he had any strong enough leads to prompt action against anyone on the suspect wall, he decided to go back to Barry Lane for fresh intelligence on any new pedophiles around. Barry happened to have a grudge with another trans person named Michael Gardner. He was also known as Michelle Gardner. Okay. Michael, age 19, was an openly gay teen that lived a flamboyant lifestyle, much like Barry himself. Barry was jealous of him. So, John, when he comes to Barry for information, Barry serves Michael up on a platter. Oh, yeah. Just tells him everything. Oh, yeah. John did his homework on Michael and found that he was the perfect next victim. He had no relationship with his family because he was gay and his family had disowned him. And he rented a room from an older woman that kind of treated him like a friend. He was, she was very sweet. When John intercepted Michael's mail and realized that he was also receiving government benefits, that basically sealed Michael's fate. Robert took the lead in the kidnapping. He looked at Michael as just another Barry Lane, the man who had twisted his mind into thinking that he was in love with him. Just another man that was taking advantage of kids. Mm -hmm. But really, Michael was no predator, and he was a little more than a child who was thrown out on his own because he was gay, and he was just trying to survive and have a good life. Robert and John stole as much of Michael's property as they could after throwing Michael in the back seat of the car to head to Snowtown. They wanted it to look like Michael had run off to go have a sex change operation. In the vault in the bank in Snowtown, John and Robert tortured Michael. They attached crocodile clips to his flesh and electrocuted him. They beat him. Mm. They would choke him out and then wake him up, stand mm. him up to do it again. Just to do it again. Yeah. yeah. Finally, after a live album played all the way through... John decided it was time to just choke the life out of Michael. Then they put his body in a barrel of hydrochloric acid. Oh, my God. He had done some planning. He had his oh, absolutely. In order. He was a planner. Oh. The only reason John did not let Robert do the killing is because John said that he could see in Robert's eyes how much he enjoyed the kill and he needed to assert control over the situation. Uh, no, I think he has that backwards. Is how much he enjoyed the kill. He wanted to do it his damn self. He only wanted them to experience this savage joy through him. After they had killed Michael, they went through this stuff and found that they couldn't find his identification. So when they grabbed all the stuff from his room, they didn't have his ID. They would need his ID to be able to cash his checks. Mm. John immediately flew into a rage. They went back to the house to see if they could break in. And they found that his room had already been cleaned and tidied up and the wallet was nowhere to be found. He realized the landlady must have it. Michael's landlady did not believe for a minute that he had run off to go get a sex change. She called all Michael's friends and the police, but nothing was ever done about it. John needed to flex his control over the group of people that he had built around himself. That's when he called in Fred Brooks, the mentally handicapped nephew mm -hmm. of Mark Hayden's wife, Elizabeth. Right. They tried to convince the landlady that Michael had moved to a new city and that he really wanted his wallet back. But this landlady was like, no, I don't believe you. And if Michael wants his wallet, he can come get it from me himself. Good for you, landlady. She's like, I don't believe none of you motherfuckers. Exactly. Yes. 
They made repeated phone calls to her over a week-long period trying to convince her that they were Michael's friends and they really needed his wallet. The others in the group just wanted to go mug the lady and get the wallet, but John knew she was the type of victim that could blow their whole operation up. She would be missed, and she was not a pedophile or a degenerate, per their definitions of those types of people anyway. Right. Finally, they decided to leave it alone and leave the money on the table. This was John's first satisfying kill, only to have the bitter aftertaste of failure because they didn't get the money. John obviously thought his people had failed him at this critical junction uh, juncture in the operation. Barry Lane, meanwhile is back in the old neighborhood, starting to realize with the disappearance of Michael Gardner that his number was coming up. Mm -hmm. He realized dispensing information to John Bunting got people killed. Barry was feeling like he needed protection. He did not want to face problems alone. He felt his days were numbered and he knew that John was just keeping him around to get info on the degenerates in the neighborhood. And just like that, Thomas Trevelyan seemed to come out of nowhere, and it seemed to solve all of Barry's problems. Thomas was an 18-year-old paranoid schizophrenic that had hallucinations that led him to believe that he was a soldier. So he always wore army fatigues. He would march around the neighborhood vigorously, Mm. always trying to get into peak combat fitness. He would often run out into the streets from his house holding a knife if he thought he heard any strange noises. Mm -hmm. One hot summer evening in 1997, Barry invited Thomas to the back garden for a drink. Barry had never approached Thomas before because of all the military gear and thinking he was a soldier. Barry didn't think that Thomas would appreciate him drooling over him. But Barry was wrong. The two men hit it off. They started off as friends, but after a while, it became romantic. Mm. After things turned sexual, Thomas moved in with Barry as a live-in husband and protector. Oh. With Thomas there, Barry felt safe from John. Right. So Barry started to talk about his experiences with John and the disappearances of Clinton and Michael. Rumors started all around the neighborhood, potentially poisoning the victim pool that John had on his suspect wall. This infuriated John. He was enraged. He thought he had complete control over Barry, and now it was clear he didn't. Mm -hmm. So in October of 1997, John and Robert Wagner, Barry's old flame, showed up at Barry's house with a six-pack of beer. They were going to get to the bottom of the rumors and gossip he had been spreading. When Robert and Jan... When Robert and John came into the living room, they acted surprised to see Thomas there. Everyone sat down and Barry told them everything he had said and to whom he said it to. He said he couldn't just let them go around and kill people for profit. While Barry was talking, Thomas came and stood protectively behind Barry. This gave Barry the confidence to continue to tell John just what he thought. After Barry got done informing him what a piece of shit they were and how deplorable they were, he asked sarcastically, anything else you want to know? John simply replied, no, I think you've told us everything we want to know. He looked up at Thomas and gave him a nod. That's when Thomas grabbed Barry around the neck, pulled him out of the chair and drug him down the hall to the bathroom. Barry lost consciousness and woke up in the tub being cradled in Thomas's arms. So he is laying with his back in the tub and he's got his legs and his arms wrapped around Barry. Mm -hmm. John stood over him with a pair of pliers. He looked at Barry and said, okay, this is how this is going to go. You're going to say what I tell you when I tell you. If not, I'm going to start crushing your toes. Mm. So Barry agreed. The house phone was drugged into the bathroom, and they made Barry call his mother. It had taken many years for Barry and his mother to rebuild their relationship. She said that Barry spoke calmly like he was reading a script, because he was. Right. He told her that he was moving to Queensland and that he wanted nothing else to do with her, and he was never going to forgive her. When Barry hangs up on his mother, John says, good boy. 
is a shame you're a fucking pedo and crushes all 10 of his toes oh while Thomas God. holds him down in the bathtub. Oh, my God. As if that wasn't enough, they electrocuted him, and then John gives Robert permission to give Barry all the payback he wanted to for the years of sexual abuse he endured, and the fact that Barry made Robert think his abuse was love. Right. Robert beat Barry until he could hardly stand. It was up to Thomas and John to wrap Barry's broken body into plastic and load him into his own car. John decided that since Barry's car was nicer than his, that he would just keep it. Oh, hey, thanks for the vehicle, man. Since you're not going to be needing it anymore. I mean, Robert swung on him so much that Robert could hardly stand anymore. Okay, but do you blame Robert? No. After what he did to him? No, but the way it shaped him, a lot of horrible things happen to people and they don't do that. So it's, you know. I know. But I understand why he just where the rage came from. Absolutely. John and Robert take Thomas back to his old apartment and help him get settled back in before they take off to Snowtown. They did not trust Thomas enough yet to let him go to Snowtown. Once back at the old bank vault at Snowtown, they shoved Barry's body into the same barrel that they had put Michael Gardner's body in. But Michael's foot was sticking out of the acid, so John took a handsaw and cut it off and pushed Mm -hmm. it down in the acid. John said that he couldn't help but think that he'd given the man exactly what he wanted because he was in a barrel with another man. I know. Uh, Just an absolute uh, piece of shit. uh, Yeah. And the fact that they worked poor Thomas up, a paranoid schizophrenic, Mm -hmm. thinks he's a soldier, into living with Barry, having sex with Barry. Just totally manipulated him and took advantage of him. into helping them commit this murder. Right. Just used him in every sense of the word used. Absolutely. And and it only gets worse. Mm. John was proud of a good day's work. They had secured Barry's house and bank information. They had his ID, so all they had to do was cash his benefit checks. There was no need to change anything, and no one would miss Barry. They did run into a hiccup when there was an error made in one of Suzanne Allen's checks, and the checks were going to be stopped if they if she didn't call and straighten out the problem. So John needed someone gullible to call and impersonate Suzanne Allen. He decided the perfect target would be Jody Elliott, the sister of Elizabeth Hayden. Okay. His good friend and co-perpetrator, Mark Hayden's wife. John, being super fake to get what he wanted, he just took it a step further. He started sleeping with Jody so that he could coerce, coerce her to call and pretend to be Suzanne. Is his dick made of gold or something? I mean, why does... I'm, I mean, maybe to the people who are following him, because they said he's so charismatic. And he's also dealing with people who were really down on their luck, had a really right, hard life. Right, And maybe... So he looks like some savior. So it, she was probably like, oh, I'm glad he's picked me. Because mm. I'm thinking, ain't a whole lot this motherfucker could do for me. No, no, but he wouldn't target us because we wouldn't be as gullible. True. After he would have sex with Jody, he said that it brought his childhood trauma back because he was sleeping with someone that he felt he had to, not because he wanted to. He was disgusted by Jody. He found sleeping with her quite disgraceful. Okay, but nobody was making him. And he, he looked at that. Jody as subhuman. Like, Well, that's because he's a fucking psychotic. He's a narcissist. It, it, yeah. Psychopath. Psychopath, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he did get Jody to make the phone call and get everything straightened out. Then the next problem John had to deal with was Thomas Trevelyan. Thomas, during this time, had started to crack. Mentally, he was not handling what they had done to Barry very well. When Mark and John got to Thomas's apartment, they found him in an almost zombie-like state. Like, he was catatonic. Mm-hmm. He was speaking monotone, and it was like his brain was just completely burnt out. Since Thomas viewed himself as a soldier, John spoke to him like one. And he ordered him out of the apartment and into the car. And he followed the orders without question. 
there again, just totally taking advantage of his mental handicap. Absolutely. To suit his own needs. And you're going to see what pieces of shit him and Mark Hayden are. Well, they all are. They drove him out into the woods far off the beaten track. They walked Thomas out to a big tree and hung a rope with a noose. Thomas started breaking down and shaking, crying, snotting everywhere. And John grabbed Thomas by the shoulders and told him sometimes the general had to sacrifice the soldier for the greater good. Mm -mm. He told him that he had been a good soldier and that he had played his part of the mission well and that he was proud of him. And then he signals for Thomas to step up on the crate. Thomas stepped up on the crate and Mark Hayden put the noose over his Mm. neck And Thomas is up there standing. He's crying. He's snotting. Well, John puts his hand on his back. And they said immediately Thomas basically stands up like he was trying to be honorable in his death. And Mm -hmm. Thomas calms down. He stops crying as much. Both men step back and salute Thomas. He salutes them back. And John starts busting out laughing and telling him how they had strung him along this whole time. He wasn't part of any mission. And then John kicks the crate out from under his feet. Oh, my God. Well, you know, that's not really that surprising. I mean, what an asshole. And I doubt he was even laughing about it. He was probably pretty matter-of-fact because psychopaths have no emotion. So they're like, oh, by the way, we were just using you because this is where we needed to get. So now that I'm done yeah, with you. Yeah, in the back. book, it made it seem like he was like looking at Mark Hayden like, oh, God, I can't even play this anymore. And they just bust out laughing. They're like, you know, you're not part of any mission. And and then they go and kick the mm-hmm. crate out from under him. Thomas's body was found a month later. But due to his mental health history, it was deemed a suicide immediately. John kept a clipping of the newspaper article about this supposed suicide as a trophy. I mean, he didn't have the body in a garden or in a barrel to have, so he just kept the article. Also around this time, John's beloved stepson, Jamie, had started using heroin. Oh, because that's going to clear things right up Mm -hmm. for him. This was a huge emotional blow to John. He had made his feelings on drug use abundantly clear. He felt drug addicts were just as bad as disabled people, but worse because they chose to be that way. Not to mention that even though Jamie had just been involved with the Ray Davies murder, he still knew about John's criminal enterprises, murder, fraud happening. He even knew about Snowtown. Mm -hmm. So having a drug addict was a liability. A liability. Yeah. Jamie comes home with a guy named Gavin Porter. Gavin is 29 years old, and he is a heroin addict. Not wanting to mess up his bond with Jamie, John switched on that charming demeanor and acted like it was perfectly fine if Gavin wanted to stay with them for a while. Secretly, John despised him and hated the fact that he was around, let alone under his roof. Mm -hmm. But that relationship with Jamie was important, so he endured it for a while. Then one day... John came home, sat down on the couch, and felt a pinprick. When he looked, he had been poked with a used syringe that was laying on the sofa. Mm, I bet he lost his shit. He lost his fucking shit right there. I, I mean, I don't blame him for that. I would have as well. This broke any will John had in trying to charm Jamie away from Gavin like he had with Barry and Robert. He knew that Gavin had to die. So with one phone call from John... Robert loaded up an empty barrel and headed out. Mm, hey, bring that barrel because there's about to be a body ready to go in that. And he was body. like, all right, I'm going to load it up now. All right, I'll see you in a minute. When he arrived at John's house, John was in the driveway seething with anger. Now that Robert was there, they could get to work. Gavin was passed out asleep in his car in the driveway because he had just shot up another hit of heroin and had fell out. Fell out. John slides in the back seat behind him and takes a tire iron, puts it in front of Gavin's neck and proceeds to pull back like he is trying to pull the tire iron through his neck and out the back side of his head. Did did he even wake up? No. Right. Uh, yeah. 
He even put his feet on the back of the seat to mm-hmm. be able to pull harder with the tire iron. Yeah. After a few minutes, Gavin was dead. Mm-hmm. His neck was hardly recognizable as a neck. It, he wasn't decapitated, but it was a flat mess. Oh, wow. Then Robert grabs a barrel, brings it over to Gavin's car, and they both put his body in the barrel head first. Then they load the barrel on the truck and head to Snowtown, where they covered him in acid mm-hmm. and put him in the vault. Back at home, Jamie started asking questions about where Gavin was, and John just kind of stonewalled him and told Jamie they could discuss it in the morning because at this point, he's exhausted. He had just got done killing somebody, driving to put their body away Mm -hmm. in acid and coming back. He was wore out. He's like, I don't have time for this. I'll talk to you about it in the morning. Well, the next morning, Jamie had taken off in Gavin's car. A couple days later, he came home. He knew what had happened without John having to tell him anything. Jamie still wanted John's approval because he was the only real father figure he'd ever had. So Jamie was able to forgive the murder to gain John's approval. In return for Jamie getting off drugs and getting over the sexual abuse he suffered at the hands of his father and half-brother, Troy Yude, John would give him the ultimate gift. Which is? Troy Yude. Okay. Troy Yude had recently called Elizabeth Harvey. That's... Her son, mm-hmm. John's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So this would also be basically his stepson. He wanted to move in with them because he was tired of being abused at home by his father. Oh, Elizabeth told him he could and he came and stayed with him. And John greeted him with open arms with his typical charm. The first night Troy was there, John decided that Jamie deserved to get his gift Robert, John, Jamie, and Mark were all looming over Troy when he woke up. Jamie took the lead and started to beat his brother. Mark and Robert helped grab him and drag him to the bathroom, where they beat him once more and demanded his financial information. Bunting used pliers to crush Yude's toes as he had coaxed him to repeat a string of numbers, words, and sentences that he had recorded. Yude was killed by strangulation. By strangulation. Mm-hmm. Jamie was not done after this brutal assault, so John let Jamie dismember Troy to mm. help deplete any rage that was left over. Right. After he was dismembered, Troy was thrown in a barrel and taken to Snowtown. Jamie was back to being John's lapdog once again, not totally free from heroin, but not using as much, and he felt much more calm. Everyone after this murder was excited and ready to do more good work. Everyone except Mark. <laughs> do, let's do more I mean, good work. They're saving the kids from oh my pedophiles. God, we're saving the world. And making money while they do it. Mark was apprehensive because his wife, Elizabeth Hayden, had started to ask questions about why so much money was coming in and out of their bank accounts and why John Bunting was involved in their finances. And Mark went and told John everything. Everything Elizabeth would say, John would go, I mean, Mark would go tell John. Mm -hmm. Well, John just looked at that as we need to murder your wife's situation. But Mark didn't want to do that yet. So they decided to kill Fred Brooks, Elizabeth Hayden's nephew, and Jody Elliott's son. Jody is the one John was sleeping with, so she would call and impersonate Suzanne Allen. That's Jody. Mm -hmm. On September 1998, Brooks was notified that he had been accepted into an Australian Air Force cadets and was invited to join John, Robert, and Jamie at a party. Jamie, Robert, and John tortured Fred in a bathtub. They inserted lit cigarettes into mm. his ears and his mm. nostrils oh my God. and lit a sparkler that was shoved up into his urethra. Stop. Stop. Yeah. Give me a shot. You over here yeah. talking about shoving some sparklers and Well, some hang on one second. Let me tell you this because you're going to need a shot when I'm done. <sighs> okay. He was then made to speak into a recording device divulging his banking information. A syringe was used to inject bleach into his testicles, which were wired to a variac machine, sending electrical impulses through his body. Oh, my God. His toes were crushed by pliers before he choked to death on his gag. 
So, yes, we'll take a shot here. And before he choked to death on his gag. Yes. Horrible. Horrific, horrific, horrific. Yeah, I can't. I'm trying to compute it all, and I can't. It's so much. So much is happening. It's bad enough that you can find one person that's willing to do that shit, but to have multiple people. Yeah. It just more than willing to help. Right. Ridiculous. Crazy. Crazy. Cheers, bitches. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That gave me a chill. That was a little zippy. Okay. Mark then came in after Fred was dead and helped load him up in a barrel and transported him to Snowtown. After Fred's disappearance, Mark was still collecting his benefit check for John, and his wife Elizabeth started keeping her mouth shut about John. She quit criticizing him, making jokes about him. Yeah, because she's reaping the benefits. She, she well, no, she knows. She doesn't like John, but she yeah, knows but he's she knows, dangerous. But, yeah, she's reaping the benefits of the money. Yeah, but you'll see. Okay. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Jody, who once swooned over John, now since her son's murder, also kept her distance. John later said that the only time he found Jody a bit attractive was when she was disgusted by him. But he would never rape because he would never be what those pedophiles were. He was out there to kill the ones that did that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make it better? But he enjoyed the fact that they knew he had done something. And they were falling in line, basically. He just liked the control. Gary O'Dwyer was the next target. He was disabled from an auto accident he was in. In this case, all of John's ideals about ridding the human race of gay and disabled people were out the window. Gary was only disabled because of an accident, so John wasn't cleansing the human race of inferior genetics. Gary was just an easy target and received government assistance. So... He was just another payday for adult bullies. He was a good, easy target. Then that does not justify what he's doing at all. Then, Yeah. No. But this is how he tells people and presents it to people. Because automatically there's something wrong with Gary. Mm. But the fact that these murderers would go in and befriend these people, which is exactly what Jamie is just about to do. Mm. Jamie would go over every day and hang out and talk with Gary. In fact, these visits from Jamie quickly became the highlight of Gary's day. He really didn't have any friends and was excited to be able to hang out with someone he thought was a good person. Jamie just wanted to get financial information out of Gary so that when they killed him, they would be able to collect his benefits. Damn. That's After cold. I know that's what I said. I couldn't so just cold. go and smile in somebody's either. face like that and then kill them. No. no. After the last visit by Jamie, he left the back door unlocked so they could come back that evening and kill Gary. They snuck into the house and Gary was asleep in front of the TV. The crew attacked Gary, beating him and then electrocuting him. <gasps> While the live album Throwing Copper played, this was something that John liked to do. He would turn this album on and torture people to until his, the album went off. To his until own the, playlist? Yes. Oh, yes. well. When the album ended, they stopped the torture and Gary was dead. They loaded him up in a barrel and took him to Snowtown. Mm. John was on top of the world right now. Everything was going to plan. But there was still only one person he could think of who could take him down. Mark Hayden's wife, Elizabeth. Right. That's his only threat right now. Elizabeth Hayden had been less vocal about criticizing John. Mm -hmm. But that didn't stop her asking questions about finances. Yeah, I'm thinking like, but that's why I thought she got quiet because she's getting the money benefits. She starts keeping track of everything. She had full access to the whole murder club's accounts. 
Mark would go and tell John every time Elizabeth asked about something with the money. And John kind of let that slide up until November of 1998. She managed to stay off John's radar until she started asking about the property at Snowtown. It was in Mark's name, but John was paying for it. She started making comments like she wanted to go see the property. They were worried that she would go get Mark's key and decide to go on her own. Mark and Jody spent the day away from the house. Mm-hmm. Of course, John knew their every movement while they were away. Right. John and Robert rolled up to Mark's house. Elizabeth was home alone. Out of respect to Mark, they didn't torture Elizabeth. She knew when she saw John's face that she was in trouble. Mm-hmm. As he came for her, she said, no, Mark won't let you. And John just laughed and said, Mark is the one who sent us. Mm. They said she just started to sob. And then Robert strangled her to death. Yeah. There weren't all the jovial feelings that normally came with a killing. They normally killed because they're in their minds. They were taking care of pedophiles and inferior people. They just killed her because she could get them called. Yeah, she's just a problem. So it wasn't the party type atmosphere. Right. Afterwards. Some reports I read said that Mark laughed when he saw his wife's body, but the book I read said that he was sad, quiet, and cried a lot. The book even says that he started to kind of pull away from John and seemed very depressed. And John, being the psychopath he is, couldn't understand why he could be upset about a woman. You just need them for sex and a cuddle if you were feeling soft. Right. He thought love was fake and that society talked about it, but he never felt it. Right. Hoping another killing would pull Mark out of his depression, he decided he needed another victim. Jamie had another half-brother named David Johnson, age 24. He was what John referred to as a yuppie and had grown up without all the abuse that Jamie had suffered and was doing pretty well in his life. Jamie and him were said to be pretty close. They called and checked on each other and called on birthdays, Mm -hmm. but Jamie could never figure out why his dad would sexually abuse him like that and his brother Troy Ube and then make Troy abuse Jamie and not his other kids. Yeah, that's fucked up. Any any molestation is fucked up, but if you notice that it's only happening to you yeah. and not the other kids in the family, that would be even more Absolutely. John seen this, and being the predator that he is, he started to twist Jamie's mind into believing that when his brother called to tell him about everything he was doing, that he was just being condescending and rubbing Jamie's nose in his success. He made it seem like his brother just thought that he was a pathetic junkie loser. Mm -hmm. By the time John was done twisting Jamie's mind, he hated his brother and wanted to kill him. The fact that he was a preppy guy just made it justifiable because in John's mind, he was a yuppie gay man and a pedophile, even though there was never any instance where he showed any interest in men. Right. The opportunity presented itself when David called Jamie because he was in the market for a computer. So Jamie tells his brother that he can get him a really nice computer for a cheap price. He would just need to go to Snowtown with him to buy it. Mm. Knowing that Jamie was in good with the criminal part of society, David thinks this is weird, but it's probably a stolen computer. That's why he's getting it so cheap. And that's why he needs to go to Snowtown with Jamie. Even though it made him uneasy, he felt safe with his brother. Mm -mm. Once in the bank, Robert, Mark, and John, and Jamie all jumped David. They forced David to make a recording saying he was leaving town and never coming back and that he had done awful things to children. But David had never done any of these things Mm -hmm. or even thought about doing any of these things. Right. Then they handcuffed him to a chair. David did not see receive welfare checks, but John thought if he has enough money to buy a computer, then he's got to have money in the bank. So they torture him to get his pin number. Mm hmm. And John sends Robert and Jamie to the nearest bank, which is in a different town, to pull his cash out. But David gave them the wrong PIN number, hoping that the teller would see them trying to use his card and check on the situation. While Jamie and Robert are gone, John wants Mark to let off a little steam since he had been depressed since Elizabeth's murder. Mm -hmm. They turned on the Throwing Copper Live album. Oh, the torture album. Yep. 
and Mark started to beat on David mercilessly. David's face wasn't even recognizable. Mark was said to be smiling the whole time he unloaded on David. The fact that David sat there and just sobbed confirmed to John that he was weak and needed to die. Mark was exhausted from beating David with everything he had and sat down to rest. John started the album over and then he beat and electrocuted David. By the time the album was over this time, David was dead. Yeah, you can the body can only take so much. Right. My God. Jamie and Robert get back to the old bank and find that they have killed David and Robert gets pissed. Robert enjoyed killing. He looked forward to it. So he is pissed. Robert squared off with John, not only for killing David before they had the right pin number, but also for having all the fun of the killing. Mm. The fun of yes. it. Yes. Where do you find a whole like-minded group right? of people that's fucked up? I mean, it's crazy enough, one serial killer, but right. then you've got a group of them? John asked Jamie and Mark to leave the room while he calmed Robert down. He told Robert how much Mark needed this and that he was really sorry that he had put in all the work without having any fun himself. John and Robert started to dismember David to stick him in the acid barrel when John decides to fillet a steak off of David's thigh. And he looks at Robert and says, all the fun doesn't have to be over. Meaning. So trigger warning here, people. Oh, if, um, God. Cannibalism me, is not what you want to hear. Fast forward through this part. Well, I want to hear it, but I'm going to need the rest of this shot. I think we I should take a shot here. Okay. Let's just give me some charge. Gear up for to, this nasty taste I'm this. about to put in your mouth. Yes. <laughs> Cheers, bitches. Mm. Okay. Okay. When Jamie and Mark came back in the room, John was cooking up a steak Mm -mm. in the kitchen of the bank. Mm -mm. Robert was sitting at the table with a half-eaten, well-done steak in front of him. So he done been chomping down. Yes. John looks at them and says, who wants some? Neither Mark nor Jamie could stomach that. As John sat there eating his human steak... He just stared at Mark and Jamie like he was daring them to say anything. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine seeing a chunk of meat that you know is human? And somebody just looking at you while they're eating it? Yes, just staring at you like, say something, motherfucker. Say something. I cannot. That creeps me the hell out. That creeps me out more than it looking like some savage just tearing into flesh and they're all bloody and crazy. That's scary. But the fact that he just calmly eating it. It's mm-hmm. like Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. kind of shit. shit. Elizabeth Hayden had a brother named Garion Sinclair. Garion was very concerned about his sister and knew something was off. So he contacted the police. Mm-hmm. Mark and Jody had failed to justify her absence. Something just felt off about it to him. He started pushing the police harder and harder to find out what happened to his sister. Now, Elizabeth Hayden is the one that was mar- is married to Mark Hayden that mm-hmm. they had murdered. Right. The police thought the situation was a little strange because they spoke to her husband, Mark, and her sister, Jody, and it was like they gave vague descriptions off the same script. Both had some subtle deviations in their story. So, Garion pushed the police to look into the couple's finances. Mark didn't work, but they lived in a nice house in a nice area. After after a lot of harassing the police, Garion finally got them to look into the Hayden's finances. Mm-hmm. When they started looking, they found a whole lot of missing people who had a steady income flowing directly or indirectly into the Hayden's account. Exactly. Almost all the money flowing out of the account made its way through convoluted means to John Bunting, Robert Wagner, Mark Hayden, and Jamie Velasquez. Imagine that. All but one property listed in Snowtown. The police didn't rush out and start interviewing the crew. They didn't want to show their hand until they had enough hard evidence to get them. 
the police at this time also still had no idea what they were about to find or what they were really getting into. But they decided to go check out the Snowtown property. When they entered the old dusty bank, the officers spread out to look for evidence of a missing wife. But what they saw was a computer set up in an office and a kitchen with a frying pan and plates in the drying rack. They booted up the computer and saw some files that had not been edited. They listened and heard David's confession of all these horrible crimes, Mm. but they could also hear him being violently attacked as well. The police had no idea what they had on their hands now. Yeah. They were just looking Nothing's for Elizabeth Hayden. Any sense. Yeah. They're just looking for Elizabeth Hayden. When they went downstairs, they opened the vault doors and saw barrels sitting in the vault and nothing else. They tried to slide one of the barrels out of the way, but realized it was full. But full of what? They didn't know. One of the officers grabs a screwdriver laying nearby and opens up the barrel. Oh, no, don't pop that lid. Mm -mm. The true Mm -mm. horror of what they had just discovered washed over them. Yes. The barrels and the chemicals and cool air in the vault had helped hide the smell. But with the lid off, the smell of death and decay permeated the building. Yeah. A few of the officers even got sick and vomited. I I can totally understand because there's nothing like that. Scene or that smell. I hope you, I never. Because you can't be prepared for that. You, no. There's no way you can be prepared for it, no matter amount of training. And they had no idea. They were just looking for Elizabeth Right, Hayden. right. What they saw in those barrels was a human soup with body parts and sludge. Oh. The police decided. I oh, I can't. I can't. I, I know. Can't. It's pretty horrible. The police decided to stay silent while they tied up some loose ends so they could nail everyone in John Bunting's gang. The police didn't want to take any chances of any of them getting away. They posted people to watch all of the doors of the bank and decided to follow up on the two longest running sets of payments that went through the Hayden's account. Suzanne Allen and Ray Davies. Which were both dead. Yes. When the police checked into them and found that they were missing, they also uncovered that John Bunting used to live right around the corner from both missing people. Mm-hmm. Under the cover of darkness, they dug up the back garden in John Bunting's old home. They didn't want to risk any of John's cronies seeing them and giving him a heads up. That's why they were doing it at night. Right. And no one was still living in this home at the time. There, they found Suzanne Allen's body parts and Mm. Ray Davies' body. Mm -hmm. The police were not surprised after what they had found in Snowtown. Knowing that they could not secure the crime scene without people noticing now, they decided to go ahead and arrest them all. In a swooping operation, they arrested Mark, John, Robert, and Jamie. Thank God. They wanted to eliminate any chance of them being able to talk to each other. At the police station, John was very confident that the police didn't have anything on him. He might have to face some fraud charges that those were pretty black and white. I mean, you got all the paperwork. But he thought he may even get out of that with time served, or at least that is what his narcissistic mind told him. The bodies, he thought, would be dissolved at the bank, and he had trained the others in what to say in case they did get arrested. And he was confident that they wouldn't tell the police anything. He also thought that Suzanne Allen's body and Ray Davies' body would have already just, um... What, like, completely dissipated? Yes. He thought there would be no trace of it whatsoever? They would have decomposed enough that the police couldn't get anything. Right. He did not know that the police had found the bank in Snowtown. They kept him in isolation, so when he heard that they weren't even going to pursue fraud charges, he actually thought that he was going to get off scot-free. John's arrogance would be his final undoing. Thank God. Unfortunately for John, his chemistry knowledge was entirely rooted in his high school education. So this motherfucker loved chemistry in school, Mm -hmm. but then automatically thought, well, I already know everything since I finished high school and went to chemistry class in high school. You know everything there is to know. Yeah, but he was an idiot. Yes. He was so certain in his knowledge of the chemicals that he used that he never bothered to look up the chemicals he was using in the barrels. (laughs) Instead of dissolving them, he essentially pickled them. 
leaving them perfectly Perfectly preserved preserved. in their death state. Oh my God. John's crimes had been perfectly preserved. Every bruise, cut, and burn. The coroner could even tell the time of death and in what order they received their torture. Oh my God. Right? But he wasn't expecting that, was it? No. What, what was he thought re- they were just going to be all dissolved. Right. So what was his response to that? Oh, my bad. I mean, what, oh. what do you? Yeah. I mean, no, he was, he, he thought actually by the time we get to trial, he thinks that when he tells his story that these were all pedophiles that he killed, that he would get a pat on the back. Right. He, yeah. He yeah. thought that they would well, just well once they hear it they're know, gonna they're gonna know I was right. We're expecting him to think like a normal right. brain would, and, and he's a and psychopath, he, right? So of course he's not gonna think like that. Even with this overwhelming evidence, they still needed to try to link Thomas Trevelyan and Clint Trezies to John, but they needed an insider, Elizabeth Harvey, John's girlfriend, mm-hmm. and Jamie's mom. Mm-hmm. Passed away while the two were still in jail awaiting trial. Okay. She got cancer and okay. passed away. I was going to ask what if she got like what happened to her. Yeah, so she, she died. passed away from cancer. Right. Okay. Jamie was kept in isolation as well. And with his mother's death and the clarity of being away from John, he started to feel the crushing guilt of what he had done. Okay. He realized that John didn't rape him like his father or Barry Lane, but he had been but used just as all much the damage, same. right? John had put him through trauma after trauma and made him believe that John was the only one that could protect him. So Jamie cut a deal with the prosecutors to tell them everything that everyone had done, and he would plead guilty to his crimes, and all he wanted was a suppression order that hid his identity from the public. There are no pics of him, no descriptions of him, and he was allowed to change his name and live his sentence out far away from the rest of the gang. Wow. And and that suppression order is still in effect. You cannot find a description of Jamie Velasquez anywhere. Well, good for him for wanting to just totally get away from all that shit. Yeah, he's like, I'll do my time. Right. Just put me somewhere else. Let me change my name. Right. And I'll tell you everything that they did. He didn't ask for any time off his sentence or anything. John was starting to spiral more into himself and his mind, in his mind, he was a crusader against predators of the world and not a monster. Jamie was the first to go to court. He pleaded guilty to the four murders he had helped commit. He received four life sentences and began serving his sentence on June 21st, 2001. Robert was tried alongside of John. And since they benefited the most from the murders and they were involved in all the murders, Mm -hmm. the trial kept having to restart because some of the jurors would be so disturbed by the pics of the bodies that they would drop out. So this trial kept getting delayed, the trial of John and Robert. Can you, as a juror, can you drop out? In Australia, apparently you can. Okay. If it's too much, I forget this is Australia. Okay. John did get the chance to get on the stand. And craving the audience and the hopeful applause, he proudly stood up and proclaimed that he was the only one out there stopping the pedophiles. The police didn't do anything to stop them. He fully expected what people would hear, or when people would hear this, that they would just agree with him and let him go with a pat on the back. But on September 8, 2003, John and Robert were convicted of 10 murders and given 10 life sentences. They would not get him on the Suzanne Allen's death because he claimed he found her dead and they right. could not prove There's that no that wasn't prove- true yeah. because Suzanne did have a lot of health issues right. as well. Mark Hayden in 2004 um, was convicted on five counts of assisting with murder, of which he admitted to two. The jury did not come to a decision on two murder charges against Hayden and another charge of assisting murder at which the senior prosecutor, Wendy Abram, indicated that she would seek a retrial on those charges. All men are still in prison now, and I hope it is their worst form of hell. Wow. So. Still to this day. Oh, yeah. They're going to be in there for life. As I, they I should be. They, I didn't know if they were already dead, though. No. But that John Bunting especially is yes. not 
he couldn't be rehabilitated ever. 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 But I, and I, I hope he's getting ass raped, which is his like biggest fear is to be passed around a prison with a bunch of gay men. Yeah. But I feel so sorry for him because he was traumatized in a way. True. And I think it's totally not, okay to that feel he bad. Heal from it. That he could not heal yes, from it. Yes, that is so tragic. It is so tragic. But Do some you, of these murders, he just did because he liked to kill. Yes, but was it because he was already so traumatized? Like, he was already would so he, fucked up. So, would he have committed murder had the sexual assault not happened on him? Right, that's what I'm asking. Or, would he have committed these murders... Even after the sexual assault, if he would have gotten the proper, you know, help to recover from that kind of situation. Right. I will say, I think in my professional, unprofessional opinion, Mm -hmm. that had the sexual assault not happened to him, Mm -hmm. that he would have just been a normal person. I, I think he's still a psychopath. I think he doesn't feel feelings like the rest of us but there are ceos that run major corporations that are psychopaths and don't kill anybody he may be ruthless in business and doesn't mind stepping on your neck to get to the next tier have no have no feeling right but would he have been a murderer right no i don't think so but who but we don't know we True. don't know. We don't. There could have been some other trigger that happened to him later on that could have sent him in a whole different direction. You're right. And he still may have ended up killing. I just feel sorry for an eight-year-old child that gets traumatized. In the book I read, that sexual assault was so great. I left out a lot of that. It was graphic. Yeah. And you could, you had, your heart just hurt for him. That's horrible. I mean, it's horrible. Because that is horrible. Yes. You're right. But... In the end, he was killing because he liked it. Robert was killing because he liked it. Mark beat the shit out of David because because he he unloaded and he liked it. I know. Jamie. And that doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it okay. Right. I just. Because he went in and killed disabled people that had nothing to do with being a pedophile. True. True. That was just his justification. But I think it's because he was just already so fucked up in the head. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there was some bottled rage there that. I don't know. I feel like some people, I feel like they get on a path and something happens. And and the, the path splits and they're gone forever. Yeah. Okay. But then I believe that some people are just born just fucking fucked up and evil and crazy from the moment they're born. Right. No matter how much nurturing or, or love they got, they're still going to go out and do right. that. You know. So th- this situation makes me feel bad because I just wonder what his life could have been like had that not happened to him. Right. Where he would be at right now. Right. So. And but, the fact that he met other people that was willing to know, jump right in and do crazy. it with him that's is cra- crazy. Well, yeah. So it's horrible. I mean, like, yes, if I showed up at your house with a dead body, you would get in on it with me. But that's because <laughs> you know that there would be like a legit fucking reason. Right. That I need you get them steaks out the freezer. You're not on a crusade. Exactly. To, I, to I kill need you monsters. get them steaks out the freezer, bitch, because we got to make room for this body I'm about to put in there. <laughs> but I, it just it breaks my heart because I don't know. Well, all these guys. I mean, look at Robert. Right. The same thing happened to him. He's willing to stay with a man that's sexually abusing him because it was so bad at it's home. It's so bad at home. And so then yeah. He, and then he's paired up with John, who just fucks him up even John more. John was the perfect predator. He yeah. knew how to seek them out that's a sad that's a sad story sad and situation i think we need a shot on this yes. one let's end it on a good note yes with a little bit of what did i call it fired <laughs> burnt burnt it's <laughs> charred charred cheers, cheers bitches, bitches. Mm. Mm-hmm. oh god i bet a little dribble of that come down my thigh. Do you have a party foul Right down my thigh, right here. Your thigh's gonna smell charred. <laughs> <laughs> Everything gonna smell charred. Burnt. Well, I just want y'all to know we appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening. Next week, 
I'm coming at you with what you coming at us with. It's 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 a little fun, it's a little crazy, and it's a lot fucked up. Well, that sounds like what we like. <laughs> exactly. That should actually exactly. probably be the description of our of podcast. Our, a little crazy, a little fun, and a lot fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, that should be the name. There you go. <laughs> the description. That's where we're going to be next week. Well, until next time, be good, stay out of trouble, or don't get caught. Bye, bitches. We hope you keep listening and find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok at Murder and Moonshine. We would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at murderandmoonshine at gmail.com. 